0: This episode is brought to you by A Startup's Guide to Remote Talent, a Tech in Asia podcast produced in partnership with GP where we discuss everything you need to know about the talent economy of today. More on that in a bit, but first, on with the show. A show where we discuss the biggest headlines to hit the startup scene with the journalists who broke the stories. My name's Nat, and today we're going to talk about Singapore-based crypto firm Knot's rise and fall. Last month, the Commercial Affairs Department, the Singapore Police Force's White Collar Crime Division, announced that it had launched an investigation into embattled crypto firm Hodelnot over claims of cheating and fraud. The company, once a rising star in the Asian crypto space, had halted its operations in August. But this story starts even further back to sometime in May of this year. Here to dish the details on the story is my colleague, Techinesia journalist, Scott Shuey. Okay, so Scott, could you just tell me, give me a little primer about Knot? When did it emerge onto the scene and when specifically it blipped on your radar?
1: Well, Knot had been around since around 2019. I didn't know much about it until June of, of this year. Now, they are... It's supposed to be a relatively stable company. They had all the appearance of being a respectable licensed company in Singapore. They held a license, uh, from Moss and they seem to be, you know, offering relatively low risk returns for investors of crypto, offering anywhere between about four to 7% in supposed to be, you know, the traditional way of earning money. You give money to the organization and they, you know, give it to somebody else and they try to make more re- on returns and they're going to give back to you. Yeah. and they were promising uh, i think on ust terra labs ust at the time they were promising 10% and on a bunch of other stable coins that were out there it was anywhere between 4 and 7%. Um, so they were considered stable and respectable and i really didn't pay much attention to them right. until shortly after ust crashed in uh, may of this year.
0: In case you're unfamiliar with the goings on in the crypto space, UST, an algorithmic stablecoin by blockchain protocol Terra, lost over 90% of its value after it de-pegged from the US dollar in May this year, causing billions of dollars in losses across crypto firms like Hodelnut around the world. For
1: about two weeks, we were trying to gauge the impact what was going on and uh Terrence Lee, the editor in chief at uh, tech in asia came to me with something from a couple of uh people on twitter one was fat man tara who's a uh, well-known agitator i'll say on on twitter he's pretty good though he knows the stuff uh, another guy who i never heard of before it was a uh, die new please small account but you know obviously they seemed to know what they were doing you know terence brought those to me and said check these numbers out they seem to suggest that this company who seemed to be respectable, had a lot of money in places they shouldn't have had it. And I'll be honest, I was skeptical because we were hearing a lot of conspiracy theories at the time about what was going on with UST, who was the blame, etc. So I sat down and I ran the numbers and the numbers looked authentic. And I got on uh, the Terra finder and looked at the accounts they had listed and I looked at. Uh, uh, the ethereum chain and what they have there and sure enough all the numbers seemed to add up i thought okay we, we may have something here and that's when i first heard of holonaut after that we had to start doing some uh some digging into them
0: right and had holonaut actually seen some early successes or milestones that um made it i guess stand out from other crypto companies in the industry or in the region Well, one
1: thing I said I said earlier, they had a license Um, Mm. that gave them that veneer of respectability. You know, I mean, even though the license was just for crypto payments and coin swaps, you know, people look. Hey, he's got a a license from Singapore's Monetary Authority. People take that seriously. So they a lot of people thought, okay, this is a good company, and they had made money on it. Depending on who you ask, the valuation of the assets under management varies from anywhere from five hundred million. To a billion dollars, it, it it basically depends on when you ask and what the prices were at the time. But they had seen a large amount of investments and had been making, you know, from what we can tell, very good profits. There's no public statements as to their their financial earnings, but we, you know, they were seemed to be doing very well, and they were seen as an up and coming crypto player who was going to offer some reasonable stability in the crypto markets. Mm. So yeah, they were they were an up and comer who seemed to have a very bright future,
0: right? And so all of this, like our whole story into Hodor not really started when uh, the Terra collapse happened.
1: Well, that's when we first found out about it, but we found out after going through everything. that the story started way before that. They weren't supposed to be. And the Anchor protocol. That was mm. something that, you know, it, the whole point of putting your money into Holding not was to put it someplace safe, not put it somewhere, you know, that was more risky. And Anchor was seen as risky at the time. Although people did, even at that time, want to get into it, and I believe Holding Knot, if, if you wanted to have your UST in Anchor, they would have obliged. Mm. But most of the other coins they were doing, yeah, USTC, uh, tether, die, all the other coins were supposed to go and earn money in return. But we found out that they had been opening up a Terra anchor uh, wallet on the Terra chain. I want to say as far back as December. And then in, I believe in March, they started making transactions and large amounts of those transactions were were starting to flow into the account. And by May, Somewhere around the first week, first two weeks of May, we noticed they had over 300 million uh, in UST in that anchor protocol. Now, now I just said, you know, overall assets, depending on who you talk to, uh, 500 million. So they had the majority of their customer clients' funds in an account they weren't supposed to be in. Right.
0: Despite this discovery, Hodelnut at the time said it didn't take any losses on UST
1: that's when the question started to come up and Zhang Dao Zhu said, Nope, not in there. We, we have no exposure. Uh, you know, we, uh, they use words, which I, I don't have in front of me. So I need to be a little bit careful because he used words, which were very specific. He said that, you know, we directly did not have an impact and he wasn't lying. He was just being disingenuous. Right. They had moved a uh, much of the client funds into net Hong Kong HK, right. which was outside the jurisdiction, outside of their license for Singapore, and from there they had moved everything to the H from the HK account into the uh, Anchor Protocol, and that's where the losses happened. Mm-hmm. So I said it was a little bit disingenuous to say they weren't affected. They obviously were, but they were sort of pushing it off as most of the losses came from uh, the subsidiary, which they still owned.
0: We'll be right back. Hey Charles, do you ever just think about the good old days? What do you mean, that? Remember how once upon a time, all it took to build a workforce was a couple of ads in the classified section of the local newspaper and hey presto, you've got yourself a staff of employees. <laughs> well, that's not the way the world works anymore. Since the last couple of years, everyone's gotten used to working from home, which means businesses have a whole plethora of factors that they have to consider now when hiring talent. Tell me about it. Like, which markets should I hire from? How can I stand out from the other hiring companies? What can I do to make sure the talent I bring on board stays? Exactly. You know, I've been speaking to a few people about the shift in the working world, and I think that you, as well as our listeners, might learn a thing or two if you'd like to hear me out. My name is Charles Ferguson, and I'm the APAC General Manager of GP. And my co-host is Tech in Asia Studios Managing Editor, Nathaniel Fetevero. In this four-episode podcast mini-series, we're going to explore the new age of hiring and how businesses of today and tomorrow can navigate the talent economy of the future. Welcome to A Startup's Guide to Remote Talent. Available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. And so after it was revealed that they did have this hundreds of millions of dollars of exposure to the Terra Collapse, how did their business actually get affected in the immediate term?
1: As far as we can tell, it didn't. They, they made some transactions which may have given them a little more life. Uh, when this whole thing was melting down, there was an opportunity to short Luna and we saw we saw some indications of what they were doing when the price was falling, but they were trying to short Luna. They still Mm -hmm. lost a lot of money, $280 million loss in the fall of Terra, you know, UST and Luna, uh, because shorting is difficult. It's not as easy as some of the people out there may make it sound and they still lost money, but they, they, when they walked away, they still seem to be relatively operational. And that continued for some time. Our story originally came out saying that they had lost, you know, money was in uh, July, I believe. Yeah. And we waited for over a month for any response anything to happen. And, uh, you know, keep in mind, this all started in May. So we found out about it in June, started researching it. Our story comes out in July and it wasn't until August 9th that we saw any cracks begin to form. And that's August 9th is when they started, they halted operations. And that's when we knew things were getting serious over there. And uh, you know, it wasn't too long after that, I think about uh, 20 days, they ended up with the interim judicial management application, basically Singapore's equivalent of bankruptcy right. before September even rolled around. But up until that time, they had stuck to it. They had stuck to their, you know, the statement that, no, they weren't hurt. And uh, they stuck to it until they had to put out a, a declaration with that uh, ijm application and that's when we started to see how bad they actually were
0: help paint a picture of this for the listeners how bad was it really when the pieces started to fall
1: i'm sure from a personal perspective they were quite embarrassed and you had the CEO who was sit there for months denying that there was any losses whatsoever from the terror collapse. And all of a sudden he's got to admit he's lost $193 million. Uh, they've gone from being a company with you know net customer assets to owing more than they had. So that's why they eventually decided to run to the uh, protection of the bankruptcy courts, Seems is legitimate. Um, but then again, even after that, there were still more problems that came up i mean they still had money but uh you know there were some of the creditors came forward had been working with the police uh the police is a complicated story behind that one but some of their assets were already being watched by the police for another company which had just recently dissolved some of their money was in ftx which seemed to be relatively okay until last month and so they have seen even the money they had left over the assets they still had under management you know at the beginning of september even that has dwindled down now and uh, i haven't seen a current estimate of how much they actually still have that that they can access but uh, i'd be surprised if they had 100 million left after over all this was done
0: right and so this was around the time that they started to halt their operations and then shortly after that they laid off a bunch of their staff. I believe it was 80% of their staff.
1: Yeah, 80% of their staff was laid off and they didn't have a huge staff to begin with, but they really mm-hmm. cut it down to everything but a skeleton crew. But that mm-hmm. happened immediately after uh, Ernst & Young came in as the IJM and they took over and they did the massive uh, layoffs. Uh, they kept a few people on that they needed, um, but other than that, it was basically uh, skin and bones. and it. Yeah, depending on who you talk to, there's also concern that what the cuts that they made, that 80% of cuts may have doomed HODL in the future. Because a lot of the restructuring plans that had been put together by the founders actually required them to have some of the staff that was let go. And right. uh, last I heard uh, was in some of the affidavits that were filed at the court, that uh, they hadn't come up with a new uh, restructuring plan now. And the only one they have still in the books still has those former employees as part of that plan.
0: On top of all that, some court drama also made headlines when some disagreements arose between Hodelnot and its interim judicial manager, Ernst Young.
1: Ernst Young, who I mentioned before, was the interim judicial manager. One of the first things they did was fire uh, uh, Damadara. Apologies if I'm I'm mispronouncing that. But they were the original lawyers for Hodlnet, And uh, I think Hodlnet had sort of been expecting them to stay on. And instead, uh, Ernst & Young hired Wong Partnerships. Now, Wong Partnerships is a completely different business operation. They're a massive law firm Mm -hmm. who handles bankruptcy both in Malaysia and in Singapore. And they're well-known in the industry, and they handle it very well. But they also represent Algorand, who is a creditor for Hodlnet. So, uh, a lot of people were screaming conflict of interest and that's still being worked out in the courts. Mm. Um, you know, I don't I haven't heard any recent things on exactly what's going on there, but, uh, you know, the founders of HodlNet, uh, came forward and said that uh, it was a conflict of interest that uh, that party, Algorand, uh, would have any type of, you know, say or influence over one partnership. Now, I doubt that's the case, but, uh, you know, they're certainly going to make that claim in court. We use the term dishonesty in the headline for that story, but there was just a lot of petty bickering and backstabbing seemingly going along in the background, which we try to sum up in a single word Uh, because, you know, normally you don't see people in bankruptcy court come out and accuse the um, attorney general's chamber of being petty. And that's Mm -hmm. exactly what Hull founders did. Uh, There was some pretty wild accusations there about, which law firms could be resented and who had uh you know bad blood between who and you can read all the stories this just gets kind of complicated i don't want to get too much into the specifics (laughs) but uh, yeah you you read into it and it's like wow there's a lot of stuff going on in the background here which is uh really interesting and uh yeah kind of nasty at times
0: too right and later in the month uh it was discovered that the Huddlenot founders actually hid some financial documents.
1: Well, actually, that's an accusation that I don't think anyone has specifically come out and proven yet. Although I think from what I've seen from Ernst & Young, it's pretty compelling evidence that they have. What they said is a lot of the documents were on computers that were still in possession of some of the ex-employees, including the ex-founders. And they said those computers belong to Huddlenot and they have our information on them and they're withholding them. And they also said that a lot of documents that were on uh, Google Docs and other type of system-wide information uh, were also deleted. Uh, I'm not sh- There was an attempt to recover some of those documents. Now, whether or not they've recovered them and whether or not those documents actually have any, any re- information which is relevant, we haven't seen yet. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, there is a huge chase for documents at this time and a lot of accusations. Uh, that's going to come out probably sometime in the next month of what they found and what they haven't, um, because there's there's a couple of of uh, hearings coming up in the case to discuss all this stuff. Mm. So yeah, it's it's looking a little bit like they have documents out there that went missing and they don't know what happened to them. But like I said, it, it, they haven't proven that quite yet.
0: As if the company's troubles weren't enough, FTX crashed last month, and so in november and i think this is something that even if you weren't familiar with the crypto world you would uh, have heard of there was the ftx debacle and uh, i guess i'm curious as to how much that actually affected hold or not like was it really what sunk them or is it kind of just the nail on the coffin at that point
1: well, I'm, I'm sure it was even a nail on, on the coffin it was just more like spitting on the coffin at this point <laughs> uh they were already sort of hurting uh, and struggling to get through this restructuring period, and there's still questions of whether or not they actually will. Mm. But the, it costs them probably estimating about 18 million dollars Singaporean dollars uh, that are locked up in FTX. And wow. the the irony here is there that going back to May when all of this started, we were looking at the numbers and we knew that a lot of money had been moved to ftx and they've been transacting with ftx when the when luna crashed and so when we saw that ftx had frozen all accounts first thing i went did was pick up some HODLNET documents and go, wait a minute i've seen that recently where was it and we went oh it's right there 18 million dollars in ftx and uh, we've seen some from documents from the courts since then that show that uh, they tried to move those that money out of FTX before it officially froze and it didn't work. They weren't fast enough. Uh, apparently they said a lot of their requests, uh, were simply ignored. And by the time they actually got a hold of somebody, it was too late. It was all gone. Well, I shouldn't say it's all gone, but it's all locked up. And the way FTX is looking these days, it's, uh, they're probably going to be pennies on the dollar if they ever manage to get anything back at all.
0: The last thing I think that we reported was when the Singapore police began a probe into Knot. Could you explain that a little bit? Well, this is what we've been waiting for for quite some time. Um, I mean,
1: I you know, I don't want to talk too much about what the police will or won't do because I don't have the slightest idea. I'm not in Singapore. But I mean, I can imagine the word fraud is going to be brought up because of the initial promises that the money wouldn't be put into those accounts. Um, you know, the uh, client accounts would not be invested in somewhere like the anchor protocol. That's probably got some people pretty angry. Singapore police said they have a lot of uh, complaints and I'm sure it originates back to that. There's also the issue of the missing documents, the uh, uh, maybe obstruction is an issue there. Mm -hmm. I can imagine there's quite a few things. And uh, I know that... uh, the founders have both been putting out um, affidavits claiming that you know they're not hiding or that these documents are you know their own personal or not relevant. But you know the police are you know going to make it rough on them. Um, I have no doubt. I mean, with that much money going missing and this much of a, of a public uh, debacle, they are certainly going to be looking hard at everything that happened and. Uh, just based on what I see, I think it's going to be a case of not just, you know, HODLNAUT as a corporation facing you know, issues. I think you might see some personal liability here too.
0: So now where does this leave HODLNAUT and the proceedings and everything, I guess, to do with HODLNAUT's slow crash?
1: Yeah. So at the end of this, I don't think uh, the LGM are probably going to be very happy with management And they are probably going to, you know, I I don't want to put words in anyone's mouth, but I see it very difficult to believe that this company will make it out of bankruptcy. Mm. Uh, Especially because, I mean, what are you going to tell the court? Yes, they have almost no money left. Yes, they owe a lot of people money. And yes, these are the same people who got them in trouble in the first place. And we're going to allow this entire operation to continue as it was before. Uh, I just have a hard time believing that's what's going to happen. I'm not a lawyer. I'm just, you know, an observer from the outside, but uh, I, there's not a whole lot of faith that that will, that will happen.
0: So, I guess, lots kind of just waiting for the hammer to fall, is that the case right now? I'd say that's
1: fairly accurate. Uh, I, I think it's more probably fair to say that the uh, former climates are waiting for the hammer to fall in hopes that they can actually get something back. I mean. It'd be interesting to see uh, who can recover and uh, what percentage they recover. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, a lot of people lost money on this, and uh, no one's going to be made a whole.
0: I think we're pretty much done. Thank you so much, Scott.
1: Yeah, no problem, man. No problem at all.
0: For more stories on Asia's blockchain and cryptocurrency scene, and any other industries across the region's startup ecosystem, visit techin.asia sub and become a Tech in Asia subscriber. Either that or subscribe to this podcast to get the lowdown on the biggest headlines to hit the startup scene from the journalists who break the stories. Special thanks to my colleague Scott Shuey for joining me on this episode. As usual, let me know if you liked it or if there's any other stories you'd like us to dive into. Until next time, my name's Nat. Thanks for listening.